Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Happy almost new year, Ronit here. I was thinking about how to end 2022 and what to do on Let's Talk Memoir to mark the occasion and realized that Laura Davis, the writer, memoirist, and teacher would be perfect. Laura Davis was on season one of Let's Talk Memoir, but before I had her on Let's Talk Memoir, I had her on my other podcast and then everything changed. We talked about the process of writing her memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars, and her approach to writing trauma, and what she finds very helpful when working on difficult memories. And we also delved a little bit more into the story itself than we did in Let's Talk Memoir. So if you love Laura Davis as much as I do, and you enjoy listening to an accomplished memoirist and teacher talk about writing and their own story and their approach to craft, then you will love this episode. And I will be back on the first Tuesday in January 2023 with a new episode. Thank you so much for being here. You know, I wanted someone to say to me, Lori, that's what they called me. Lori, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Or or, this happened to me too, you know, and that never happened. So we ended up in a war and my mother and I became deeply estranged. We already had had a relationship with many fault lines in it. And this was kind of the last straw. Mm. Not just that I said that he had abused me, but that then I, I published a book and I was, <laughs> yeah. tra- I was on national TV, you know, basically outing the dirty laundry of the family. And it was like, I, this was one of those moments that changed my life because when I made the decision to go ahead, I knew I was doing something irrevocable, you know, and that I couldn't take it back. Once the book was published, that was it. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Laura Davis. She's the author of many nonfiction books, including The Courage to Heal for Women Survivors of Child Sexual Abuse, The Courage to Heal Workbook, Becoming the Parent You Want to Be, and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, The Road from Estrangement to Reconciliation. Her groundbreaking books have been translated into 11 languages and sold more than 1.8 million copies. Her new book is The Burning Light of Two Stars, a mother-daughter story about her embattled relationship with her mother, Temi, and their determination to love one another. The Burning Light of Two Stars is both prequel and sequel to The Courage to Heal, revealing in page-turning intimate detail how Laura reconciled with the mother who betrayed her and came to care for her in her final days. Welcome, Laura. Oh, thank you for having me, Renita. I'm so pleased to be here. I'm so happy that you're here, and I'm really overjoyed because I feel like in this in this conversation, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and I want to just make a note that this will be a two-part interview. So the first part is going to talk a lot about your book and the process of writing it and what your relationship with your mother was like, and then when we go to part two, we're going to really dig into some writing and some ethics of writing and you know your experience as a writer in, in this field for so many years. So... 
the first the first question I have is, you know, there's a lot of people who are younger than the courage to heal. There's a lot of people who don't remember it coming out. And this like a little background on the courage to heal, because I grew up with my mom like I knew this book was in, in the ether. I had heard about this book from my mom when I was growing up. And so in 1988, the courage to heal catapulted you to notoriety. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, that book before we go into this next book, which is really related to your experience with your first book? Yeah, well, um, to start with, uh, I was sexually abused by my grandfather, my mother's father, and blocked it out as a way to survive for many years. And when I was 27 years old, and in my first really serious intimate relationship, I was I was with a woman I thought I would be with for the rest of my life, which didn't end up happening, but she was the one. And when I got in the situation where intimacy and sexuality were happening at the same time, memories of this early childhood abuse came up. And mm-hmm. um, I was just devastated, and it just catapulted me into just the hugest emotional, psychological crisis. And one of the ways I dealt with it was I, I had already been a writer uh, for years. I, I joined a writing group with a woman named Sandra Butler, who had written the book, The Conspiracy of Silence. I was living mm-hmm. in San Francisco at the time, and she had this, it was probably like an eight-week workshop, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it, we were writing about our sexual abuse. And, and that got me started writing hundreds and hundreds of pages mm-hmm. Um and ultimately, I ended up teaming up with Ellen Bass, who is a writing teacher and a poet. <laughs> yes, actually, my master's program at Pacific University, oh. I, I heard her read many times. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, Ellen and Ellen had been my writing teacher uh, for a few years, and we became friends. And we ended up teaming up to write this book, The Courage to Heal. And she had, she had already published a book called I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, which was really mm-hmm. the first book where women told their own stories and really it was testimony about their experiences being sexually abused as children. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that had ever come out. I think the book came out probably in like 1986, something like that. It was, it was groundbreaking at the time. There was, this was, you know, decades before Me Too mm-hmm. and women were silenced, you know, mm-hmm. and there was no forum for women to tell their story. So that book had a huge impact. And the publisher, um, Harper and Rowe at the time, wanted her to write a sequel and they wanted her to write about not just what happened, but how do you heal from it. And that's the book that became The Courage to Heal. And mm-hmm. we worked on it for several years, um, interviewing, you know, I interviewed hundreds of women about their experiences, as diverse a group of women as I could find. Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, way before the, the people used the internet widely. <laughs> so it was, you know, putting little notes on bulletin boards wow. and all word of mouth. And we ended up writing this very big book um, that really, in very simple, clear, emphatic language, told women that there was hope, that they could heal, that they didn't have to be damaged forever. And it set out a pathway for how to accomplish that healing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I had no idea. We, we had a book contract. Um, we had an advance. We had an agent. I got all these things through Ellen. Mm-hmm. But as we were writing the book in the years it took us, I was convinced it would not be published because I thought it was just way too radical. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was challenging the patriarchy. It was mm-hmm. calling out 
male violence and sexual abuse and domination. Uh, there were lots of lesbians in the book. I just thought, oh my God, they're <laughs> never going to publish this book. <laughs> right. But they did. And, you know, and I had no idea. But, you know, within six months, it became this grassroots underground bestseller passed woman to woman and hand to hand and therapists started recommending it. And it, it had a life so far beyond me um, mm-hmm. and us and anything I would have anticipated. And, you know, soon I was getting called to give speeches and travel around the country to talk about healing from sexual abuse. So basically this thing that had been the worst thing that had ever happened to me suddenly catapulted me into this fame yeah. And it was a kind of very strange type of fame because it was centered around my victimization and my, you know, supposed triumph and healing from it. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and I was only 31 years old, so I was so young mm-hmm. and I was still so much in the throes of my own healing process at that time mm-hmm. that I wasn't really equipped um, to deal with the the impact of the book and the, the, you know, everywhere I went, people were telling me, I mean, I would go to the movies and someone would follow me into the bathroom to tell me their incest story. Mm. And I just, uh, it was overwhelming and also felt like I was fulfilling my life's purpose. So it was, it was a very, mm, very mixed, right? Very mixed, uh, complicated experience. And, and mostly I just was so honored to be in the position of having created something that helped, you know, millions of women. Yes, and I think it's really important because we're we're a couple of years out now from you know the beginning of the Me Too movement at large, even though it was it's been around for a bit. But I feel like it's really important to place this in history. And I I was alive during that time, and you were you were coming into your own as a writer and an advocate. And to really take a moment and remember, there was no internet. Everything you said, I just really want to soak that in because there was no internet. There was no Me Too. There wasn't the social media platforms we have. You know, this is still not a subject. Incest and sexual abuse are still not a subject that everyone wants to talk about. It's still something people shy away from. But it's actually a lot more in the forefront of our conversations these days. And to, to imagine back then, you know, decades and decades ago, when this was a really taboo subject, and to think about women trying to step into this power and claim their stories without the backup of other women in far off places, because there is no internet or social media, it's really something to think about. Yeah, I mean, women would, would line up around the block when I would speak, and they would they would cross state lines, they would come on buses. I mean, and it was every type of woman, you know. Um, it was it was a it was a phenomenon, and um, mm-hmm. a very powerful one. And I, you know, to this this was thirty five years ago almost, and I I still feel this both sense of awe and humbled at being in the kind of I I guess I would say the right place at the right time to be at the mm-hmm kind of ground zero of this movement that began the empowerment of women who had been sexually abused. Um, yes. Which, which ultimately, you know, then there was a backlash, as there always is. Mm-hmm. And we're still dealing with some of the ramifications of that backlash. But there was a time when, you know, the empowerment of women and women speaking out was honored, like across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, until the forces that w- want to repress women uh, came in and, and felt threatened. Right. By this empowerment. And then, you know, there was a huge pushback, as there always is when there's social progress. Yes. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, neither you or Ellen are therapists, right? That's right. So it's interesting to me. I mean, 
I'm just curious what you make of this idea that you had the the platform to offer advice about healing and how that was received in maybe the therapeutic community because, you know, in a way, like what worked for you is advice that you're giving to people as writers and human beings. And so it's just an interesting aspect to think that you neither of you were social workers, neither of you were psych psychotherapists or anything. So how did it feel to be giving that advice? Well, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, as I said, I interviewed hundreds of women and Ellen at that time was uh, running writing workshops for survivors. And it was, you know, really the wisdom about what it took to heal came from the survivors themselves. Mm. You know, it wasn't some kind of framework we made up in our minds. It was mm -hmm. what we heard in testimony from women over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And therapists loved the book. And, you know, it, it was, it, if you go to any therapist of a certain age, um, this book will be on their shelf. Yeah. And, 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 you know, people still tell me, oh, yeah, your book, <laughs> your book, your book saved my life. Yeah. I remember when it came out or I gave it to all my clients. So I think therapists were incredibly grateful to have some um, tools that, you know, and they wouldn't have accepted it if it didn't validate what they were already seeing in their practices. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so so I think the fact that it was a grassroots um, effort and that, that the, the, the testimony and the, the process emerged from what women had to say, I think, made the book all the more powerful. And it, mm -hmm. it was not written... It wasn't written in therapist's language. Mm -hmm. You know, it was written very, you know, Ellen and I both had the writing skills to m give the book immediacy. It was also filled with women's stories where women themselves were talking about the healing process and what it had been like. And I think that the power of the book was that women saw themselves when they read it, they identified with the women in the book. Mm -hmm. They saw their experience reflected maybe for the first time. Mm -hmm, right. And that's really important that it was the first time that this was being covered in this way. Um, so how did your family receive the story, the book, your work, and your coming out with, with the truth about how you were abused? Well, it was a little bit divided um, from my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family. My, fa my parents were divorced, and my father was very supportive all along. And mm. In fact, when I told him about my grandfather, he looked at me and, you know, the, a lot of emotion crossed his face and he just said, I always thought he was a bastard. Mm. And so he believed me right away, which was incredibly important for me. Mm. Um, and there were a couple of other people in my family at that time who believed and supported me, but largely um, my mother and her whole side of the family, which was the bulk of my relatives, were horrified they didn't believe it had happened. They thought I was, you know, under the influence of a therapist who had, mm -hmm. I don't know, somehow implanted these memories in me. And they really wanted the whole thing to go away. They desperately wanted me to recant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just as desperately, I wanted their acknowledgement. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted someone to say to me, Lori, that's what they called me. Lori, <laughs> I'm so sorry this happened to you. Or, or this happened to me too, you know. And I, I, that never happened. So we ended up in a war, and my mother and I became deeply estranged. We already had had a relationship with many fault lines in it, and this was kind of the last straw. Mm. Not just that I said that he had abused me, but that then I, I published a book, and I was, <laughs> yeah. tra I was on national TV, you know, basically outing the dirty laundry of the family. And it was like I this was one of those moments that changed my life because when I made the decision to go ahead 
I knew I was doing something irrevocable, you know, and that I couldn't take it back. Once the book was published, that was it. Mm. Um, and that is what happened. You know, it, it, it did, it, it was, I, for a long time, it was, you know, I had given this book to the world and I had helped so many people and I had lost my family in the process. Mm -hmm. Did you have doubts as the book started to gain momentum or as you were asked to go on TV? Did you have any doubt at all that you should go or that you maybe you didn't want to do this? No, I think my doubt came up when we were writing the book. I think I was just so terrified about how my family would respond. You know, mm -hmm. I was petrified. And, and many times Ellen had to talk me down off the uh, ledge uh, of just complete panic. I mean, I, you know, I'm a survivor and she, a survivor of sexual abuse, she is not. And I was also still so in my own process. You know, I was probably going to therapy a couple times a week. I was deeply involved in my own healing. And it was really intense to be writing this book at the same time. And when I thought about what would happen, and particularly my mother was the one who always loomed huge in front of me, you know, mm -hmm. because she was a larger than life person who I was incredibly embroiled with psychically and emotionally. Mm. And her approval, which I never got, was something mm. I was always seeking at that time in my life. Mm -hmm. And knowing that this might, you know, re render our relationship apart forever was just like devastating to me. But once I did it, I was all in. Mm -hmm. you know? It felt like I was, this is what I was, I felt like I was I was fulfilling my life purpose in writing mm -hmm. that book. Mm -hmm. And it, it's kind of, um, it's an odd experience to do that so young. Yeah. Because it's like, well, then what do you do with the rest <laughs> of your life? I mean, I can imagine that. I can totally imagine that. I mean, it's it's like uh, the two or threefold issue that a lot of writers might have because of the way it was greeted. I mean, if you have a really successful book, if you've really hit hit your purpose and hit your stride early, then, you know, what do you do? Do you write more? Do you coast? Do you, you can you back away from it, you know, or do you, do you go in even deeper? And that, that's actually really um, interesting because I, I, I spent about five years really actively in that world. I wrote three more books about healing from sexual abuse. Um, I was, like I said, I was on the road. I started teaching workshops and, you know, I went from, at the time The Courage to Heal came out, I was living in a shared flat in San Francisco with three or four roommates. I had three part-time jobs in the media. Oh. I was barely, you know, existing financially. And suddenly I had this best-selling book and a, a, a booking agent, you know, mm -hmm. who was setting up these. And I, I found that actually I was really effective on the stage. I mean, that I am a communicator whether it's in writing or speaking or I was on in radio for a while, like that's what I do, you know, and I, I, I my, my website has the tagline healing words that change lives. Mm. And, and pretty much everything I've done in my whole adult life has been on that theme. Um, so I didn't really hesitate doing all of that. It, it really felt like it was what I was meant to do. Mm -hmm. Do you do you have siblings, by the way? Yeah, I have one brother. Um, mm -hmm. I have an older brother who's, uh, he's actually, uh, a main character in my memoir, um, which he was very generous mm -hmm. to allow me to write about him. <laughs> mm. Did, did he have a, did he have a similar relationship with your mom? No, you know, his, his relationship was very, and actually I just want to say that he, when I came out with the sexual abuse, he was not one of my supporters. 
Oh, you know, he was sort of he was he was always try in the middle. You know, he was like between me and my mother. He would he would sort of when, when he talked to me, it was like just get over it. Like even if, even if it did happen, <laughs> just let go of it. You know, he was always mm. trying to be the peacemaker, and uh, and it really impacted our relationship negatively for decades. That he didn't support me. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't believe me. He maybe he be he sort of believed me, but he he didn't support me in what I needed to do to heal. And he just mm -hmm. wanted to minimize the whole thing and make it go away. Um, that must have been really painful, um, you know, because you didn't have your mom's support and you didn't have your only sibling's support. It was it was excruciating. I felt so isolated. And I mean, I've always had incredible friends and I've been really good at building community for myself, I think, in part because, you know, when I came out as a lesbian, I was 23 and my mother rejected me then, too. You know, she did get, she got over it, uh, you know, in a few years she got over it. But for the first few years it was excruciating. And so, you know, like many gay people, I created a community separate from my birth family. And mm -hmm. and I've, all my adult life, I've had really strong friends and community. And, and in many ways they're more important than my relatives. You know, mm -hmm. although I've made peace with many of my relatives, the people I go to when I really need something are always going to be my friends. They're mm -hmm. not going to be my relatives. Mm -hmm. But you would right. ask me, you asked me something else about my brother that I didn't didn't answer. Uh, I think you did though. I think I'm asking. You know, we were just talking about. You know, you know, was any? I'm kind of curious. You know, if you were in this all alone, and even though you had a sibling, you were you know, in this alone, except for the support you got from your father. I mean, familially, obviously, your, your, your community was vibrant and thriving and really supportive of you. Did anyone in your family uh, come out with their own story about your grandfather? Was this, did, I know abusers typically abuse more than one person. So are you, are you, without letting someone else's privacy, you know, see the light of day are you aware that he was abusing anybody else I, I no one has ever validated that yeah you know, it was something mm -hmm. I, I wished would happen but mm -hmm. I had to just you know I, I had to just stand there alone and you know sometimes when someone comes out with this in a family someone else will come forward um, yeah but, but that did not happen for me I think that that I guess you know this has been so many years now and I guess mm -hmm. I really believe that at first, I was just outraged and hurt and wounded and devastated by that. But now I just feel like I was stronger. I had more courage. I And in, in part, it's because of my mother who denied it for so long. She gave me a, a certain strength that made me able to stand up and say that this happened to me. Mm -hmm. And um, she didn't share that strength. And mm -hmm. and neither did any of my other relatives. And, and I... I I, I accept that now. Mm. You know, I really accept wow. that that this was something I was able to do and they weren't. And and for whatever reason, they had to defend, protect. Maybe they didn't remember. And maybe I was the only one. I mean, I can't really say for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that's highly unlikely because of what you said. You know, men don't begin yeah. abusing children when they're 70 years old and just do yeah. it once, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do want to talk a little bit about, and then we're going to move into this this later relationship with your mom because that's what this subject of this new memoir is but what about this relationship between acceptance forgiveness people ask me a lot because of my own experience growing up in my memoir you know have you forgiven your mom have you forgiven and and I I'm still working all that stuff out and what those words mean and and do you what what is your relationship to forgiveness acceptance and in your story with your family 
You know, forgiveness is a is a really complicated subject. We wrote about it extensively in The Courage to Heal, and I've actually written about it in other books that I've written as well, because forgiveness is the thing that everyone else urges you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and and often they're urging you to do it to shut you up. <laughs> you know, because they want they want things to be copacetic, they want things to be peaceful. So it's like just forgive and forget, um, and just let go of it. And even if it happened, it was a long time ago. And and a lot of that is just incredibly not helpful, <laughs> because my experience with forgiveness, and I have forgiven a lot of people a lot of things, is that it is not something that I can make myself experience. That for me, my experience of forgiveness has come at the long, at the end of a very long healing process. You know, mm-hmm. so that that I have gone through the rage, I've gone through the grief, I've gone through the numbness. You know, mm-hmm. I've gone through healing in my body, you know, on a physiological level, getting the trauma out of my body. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, created a new life that is better than the life I left behind. Oh, I've gone through all those steps. And then often for me, my experience of forgiveness is it's almost like a gift that you get unexpectedly. Like it's never something I have tried to strive for. I, I think the only really essential forgiveness that is worth really working toward is for ourselves, toward ourselves, because so many of us blame ourselves mm-hmm. and take responsibility for the trauma we've experienced or the challenges we've experienced, and that mm-hmm. we have to forgive ourselves. That's the first, most essential kind of forgiveness. And I think forgiving someone else, you know, it, it certainly is a lot easier if that person is accountable. Mm-hmm. and owns up to what happened and changes their behavior so they're not repeating the offensive mm-hmm. behavior, mm-hmm. Um, then it's, I think it's a lot easier to forgive someone. But, but even when that doesn't happen, I have experienced forgiving people, but it's not because I felt I should or I had to. It's because I got to a place where I was able to see, almost like see the whole scenario from a much huger vantage point so mm-hmm. that it was not just like, me and my mother in this little bubble, but it was like expanding and seeing the generational history, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all the things that came down our family line to create her and then to create me and, mm-hmm. and really seeing the context of her life and when she grew up and where she grew up and the poverty of her childhood and so many other factors where she no longer was just my mother who was somehow thwarting me or... <laughs> you know, trying to control me or all the things I felt about her. But I saw her as a, as a vulnerable human being. And it, it enabled me to see her. It, it's just like this different vantage point. Yeah. But, but that takes, it takes a lot of maturity. It takes a lot of time. And it takes, for me, it took a lot of therapy and a lot of work on myself to get there. And, and as I said, it was, it was a byproduct. And, and mm. one I really appreciated, I mean, it's fantastic to forgive someone. You know, it, it does, everything they say about forgiveness is true. It, it lightens your load. It frees mm-hmm. you up. It keeps you not tied to the past. But I, I resist focusing on it because of the way other people try to cram it down our throats. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And that's very different from acceptance, which you said you came to earlier. So what's the acceptance piece then? I think acceptance is understanding that I can't control other people which has been, I've certainly (laughs) spent my whole life trying to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think accepting that I can't, you know, like I couldn't make my mother believe me, Mm -hmm. you know. 
um, you, you can't make someone else do something. And I think it's really, mm-hmm. it, it, there's a certain amount of surrender um, that was required for me in getting to that place of acceptance. But just, you know, um, you know, one of the one of the things between my mother and I is we ultimately got to a place of what I call agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. You know, where there was there was still this giant unresolved issue between us, which is, you know, her father's sexual abuse. You know, and her quest, her thing would be it didn't happen. My thing was it did happen. Uh, yeah. um, we we were at a standoff and what I discovered over a period of many years, and in part because the two of us both really wanted to love each other, really wanted a relationship with each other. So, I mean, we both, there was, it was like this glue keeping us together, <laughs> even when we were the furthest apart. You know, there was still this very strong cord between us. Um, and in fact, in some ways, I was more obsessed with her when we were estranged. <laughs> Could you and talk not about talking that? to each other? What do you mean? Like, how did that manifest? Well, let me just finish with this other thing about yeah. about agreeing to disagree. Is that that I got to a point of like, okay, we are not going to resolve this. I'm not going to get from her what I want, and she is not going to get from me. I'm not going to recant. It's too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, besides, it happened. So you know, but then we started building a relationship around the fringes of that. Like we started finding small ways that we could connect and create new experiences in the present. Like my mother and I both love the theater, you know, so mm-hmm. we would go to see plays. Um, we, you know, she, she started spending time with with her grandchildren, my children. Um, and, you know, it's complicated. That, that's, a, that's a very long story that I, I tell in the memoir. But, you know, we started re- reweaving threads that didn't have to do with this horrible thing in the center of our relationship. Mm-hmm. And I found that we started to create new experiences and, and, um, and that we were able to have a kind of relationship. It wasn't what I, what, what I wished for, that we would have this deep reckoning, you know, mm-hmm. and I would mm-hmm. finally get the validation I wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for that, that, that didn't happen for a long time. So um, anyway, that's what I wanted to say about that. Yeah, and, and she did... She did move out to to be with you in Santa Cruz when she was eighty. Yes, that was that was um, definitely. You know, it's interesting. I was when I was working on uh, the Burning Light of Two Stars. One of the first things I did was I made a list of these major turning points in my relationship with my mother. You know, all the way back from my birth mm-hmm. until the present day, and there were probably like twenty or twenty five things on the list. And those all became pivotal scenes in the memoir because the memoir is the story of our embattled relationship mm-hmm. um, and our struggle to love each other and, you know, how I was able to reconcile with this woman who had betrayed me. And all those were pivotal moments. And the one you just mentioned was definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me because you have an older brother and she chose to come to live near you. Oh yeah, that you know that was what you asked me before. He he did have a very he has a very he had a very different relationship to her than I did. Mm-hmm. He didn't have all this conflict and mother daughter angst. <laughs> that that was what you had asked me before. 
Uh, yeah. yeah she, she chose, I don't know, what is it about the mother and daughter? I was just going to ask you because <laughs> I just, I have a whole section of notes here that's, you know, what have you learned about the mother-daughter relationship and, and what has surprised you and, and what has kept, what is what keeps surprising you again and again? Because it is a very special thing. It's a very different thing than the other relationships. Yes, it is. And and why did she come out here? Um <laughs> I, I, I guess so what you I was can write your that, memoir. That, that, <laughs> so yeah, read the, read memoir. the memoir, you'll find out. But um, when one of those turning points I was talking about was that when she was 80, um, I had moved across the country um, decades earlier. Uh, she lived in New Jersey, where I had grown up um, till I was 16, 17 years old. And I was living in California. As I always said, it was like as far as I could get from her without crossing an ocean. <laughs> and I, th- those 3,000 miles were very important. And, mm-hmm. and at that point, when she was 80, we had figured out a way to have a relationship. And that distance was an important part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there were that, it created a cushion that enabled us to relate to each other successfully or mostly successfully. Um, but when I was when when she was eighty, she called me one day and announced that she was moving to Santa Cruz, which is where I live, and basically that she was coming for the rest of her life. And uh, I was just stunned and shocked. And you know, part of me wanted her to come. Part of mm. me wanted to be the daughter who would show up for her, um, mm-hmm. because at that point her her memory was already starting to slip. I mean, she was already showing signs of her her decline. But I was just like, this is going to ruin my whole life. This is good. Like we were, we were in this careful state of equilibrium Mm -hmm. that has taken us so many years to achieve that this so-called reconciliation we had, it felt a little bit like a house of cards. Like at any Mm -hmm. moment it could collapse. Mm -hmm. And when she called and said that, it was like, this is, this is going to ruin everything. But yet I wanted to. So I was conflicted from the moment I got that phone call. Oh, um, I can imagine. I mean, a lot of people move away from their families to stay away from their families. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you do when your family comes comes for you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So so then the book is is going to I mean, I don't want you to give too much of the book away, but essentially you you cared for her in her last years while while she was declining. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the what I'm trying to um, answer in the book, you know, my mother and I, the, the uh, estrangement between us and the betrayal was huge. I mean, this whole thing about her not believing me about what her father had done is a, a huge betrayal. But, you know, I think millions of people have betrayals with their family and maybe they're not all so big. You know, it mm-hmm. might be something smaller, but still significant, something that still is under your skin and sticks in your craw and that you can't really let go of it or forget it. And... And when there's unresolved issues like that, and then someone in your family needs you to step in and be there for them, mm-hmm. what do you do? And, and that's really what I look at. What do you do? And the question for me was, was I capable of becoming the daughter she needed me to be, despite mm. the fact that there was so much still unresolved between us? And her decline and her dementia, they push, it pushed every button I had. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. she created those buttons. Mm-hmm. And when someone has dementia, they, uh, you know, their filters are gone. Mm-hmm. And so all her worst behavior um, began to emerge again. And I couldn't get away from it because she was in my town now. And that's the story I tell yeah. in the book. <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's, it, you know, I don't think it's going to be disclosing much about the book uh, to ask you, but did you consider how uh, some people might have just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take care of you. I can't do that. Or, or now it's too much. Well, you know, I, I, I always, um, one way I like to describe my relationship with my mother was two souls who could not quit each other. <laughs> and in a way, I felt like I, it was, and I, I mean, I do live in California. I don't think of myself as a particularly woo-woo person, but uh-huh. I really felt like it was a karmic connection. I, I felt like this was meant to happen, mm-hmm. despite mm-hmm. how incredibly difficult it might be. I, I, there was, I felt like I wanted to rise to the occasion because I hoped it would make me a better person, you know, a less selfish person, a more heartful person. And and for me, it was, you know, the story I'm telling is the story of someone whose heart was closed for very good reason. You know, and mm-hmm. I had I had controlled my life in such a way that, you know, I had I had my spouse, I had my children, I had my business, I was a writing teacher, I had, I had, you know, kind of created a world that worked for me. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, here was this woman who was this larger than life, incredibly charismatic, dramatic, figure <laughs> arriving back in uh and i i wanted to be there for her i just mm-hmm. didn't know if i could do it and so mm-hmm. i was i was very ambivalent but mm-hmm. i did not stand in her way um, mm-hmm. in fact i i did everything i could to welcome her but once she arrived and the reality of what it was going to be like like the the morning after she arrived and it was like Oh my God! What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> well, I mean, that's that was my first thought. I mean, I just I can't, you know, I, I, I that's why I'm saying. I mean, some people just wouldn't do it. You know, they'd say, you know, I, I can't do this. And um, I I, th- I think it's also interesting to to know that you have written this book, you know, all these books, and you seem like from my conversation with you and the work that you do to be a really open and, uh, you know, vulnerable person. And yet you just described something about yourself as being kind of closed off and in control of stuff and not wanting to be open to her arrival and, you know, this behavior. So it's funny to me that you have the, the, this like authorial memoir type of open writing life, but you also can describe yourself as sort of closed off and in control and not wanting to be, not wanting to tap into this part of the relationship with her. Well, you know, it's interesting because we all have our public persona, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when I was, um, I don't know, like I, I took me over 10 years to write this book. And I don't know, maybe like four or five years into it, I was driving with a friend of mine, Susan Brown, who's uh, was a, a literature creative writing professor for like 30 years. Mm-hmm. And she and I were driving and she was one of my first allies in writing this book. And she had read a draft, you know, of some of the early stages and and Susan never pulls any punches she's brutally honest which is makes her quite challenging to have her critique your work mm-hmm. and she just looked at me and she said Laura this is not the courage to heal it is the courage to reveal mm-hmm. and you know basically she said you're making yourself look too good mm-hmm. and so I mm-hmm. I really took that to heart and I I think that, you know, when I, I've had a lot of beta readers for this book, that's part of my process is getting people to read it along the way and asking them certain questions. And mm-hmm. I think the the one thing I asked over and over and over again is how does the mother come across? Because the last thing I wanted was to demonize my mother or create her as a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there were lots of times in my life I felt like she was a villain. 
Mm-hmm. And I was really pleased that, you know, by the time I finished, you know, draft number 100 or whatever, um, people said, you know, you are two flawed human characters. And there were times I was rooting for you and horrified by what your mother was doing. And there were times I were rooting for your mother and horrified by what you were doing. Wow, yeah. So, so I felt like I had succeeded in being vulnerable in that way and revealing my less than uh, stellar qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, the, the, who I, I want people to think I am and who I really am, I really made an effort to to show that vulnerability and to show my, you know, the times I'm selfish and self-absorbed and um, controlling and all those other things, you know, that, that I don't like to admit about myself. And I think mm-hmm. it makes it a much better story. Oh, yes. I mean, I definitely think that's a really important part of memoir. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about that even more in the second part of the interview. So so now that, you know, you're, you're this next part of the story with your mother is coming into the world and, you know, it's sort of the prequel and the sequel, which is really interesting. Um, you know, what do you, what do you think? Do you see yourself writing more about your mom again and your relationship <laughs> in the future? Or do you feel like you're done? Well, it's so funny. I, I, um, one of our first visit visitors, uh, when the pandemic was loosening is this cousin of mine on my father's side of the family, actually. And, uh, we were sitting out in the backyard and she, you know, she's, she was someone who didn't never really supported me in any of this. Like she just wanted everything to be nice, you know? Mm -hmm. And she just said, she said, Laura, are you you ever going to be done writing about this? (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at her, I said, yeah, I think so. I think this is it. I mean, I, you know, I've been, I've been writing about my mother since I, the first thing I published a poem in a, a Tilly Olson anthology when I was like, I don't know, 23 years old. Mm-hmm. about my mother and her drinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I actually regretted publishing that poem, but I, you know, I, I, so I've been writing, I wrote about her for decades mm-hmm. and, and sometimes more publicly, sometimes less, but this book tells it all. And I just, I feel like I'm done, you know, and I, I, I think it would be really fun to write about other things and maybe to not just write, you know, memoir and nonfiction, but what would it be like to write fiction? What would it be mm-hmm. like to make something up? I, I have a couple of, <laughs> I have a couple of writing students right now who, you know, I help them all the way through their memoirs and now they're mm-hmm. writing novels mm, and they are having so much fun. And I just see the freedom they have just to make crap up, yeah. and, you know, which you don't have when you're writing a memoir. And so, um, yes. I, so I don't know. I mean, right now, all I'm writing is like, you know, promotional copy. So uh, <laughs> I'm in a different phase of the, you know, the book process. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not someone who has several projects going at once. And in fact, this book um, is the first book I've published in 19 years. So that's hmm. really gives you an indication that I'm not like a constant writer. And, mm-hmm. you know, some and, of yet, that, and yet this is your seventh book. So. It's my seventh book. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, I decided to raise a family, which, you know, some creative people decide not to do that. You know, they just are dedicated to their, you know, their, uh, their writing in such a way that they don't do that, especially women, you know, because women mm-hmm. don't have usually a husband who will mm-hmm. take care of the kids. Um, I decided to do that. And then I, you know, I've been teaching writing and helping other people with their books and their projects for over 20 years. And so my head has been filled with other people's stories a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, yeah. it, it felt really wonderful to deeply get into the writing process. And, you know, one of my favorite things about working on this was that 
the books I had published before were nonfiction and they were, you know, they were either self-help or information-based books. You know, I wrote a parenting book. I wrote the mm -hmm. book on reconciliation. But those were like how-to and information. And writing a story was completely different. You know, mm -hmm. like a book-length story. And I, I realized, even though I'd been teaching writing for two decades, I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> and that I got to a place where I just was like, I don't know. I had all these short pieces, scenes, mm. you know, which were, some of them were super good. But I had no idea how to go from that into creating a compelling complete book. Mm -hmm. So I had to I had to level up my own skills. Um, and that was both challenging, frightening, and, and so rewarding at this stage in my career as a writer to realize that as a writer, it's it's one of these amazing things where you can just keep growing. Yes. Yes. And it is interesting, too, to think that, yeah, this was a whole new type of genre for you in a way. I mean, it, you've been in the space for a long, long time. But to tell your own story in, in a more of a memoir way rather than relying on interviews from other people or being instructional, it is quite it's quite a different kind of wheelhouse. Well, it's radically, radically different. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. I had to learn how do you keep people turning pages? You know, mm -hmm. how do you create a compelling plot, especially in a memoir, uh, mm -hmm. is quite a challenge. So um, it was it was fun. I, I and I, I had to get a lot of help. Um, and it took me a long time. And I was filled with self doubt. While I was doing it. <laughs> like, I, I, there's no way I could pull this off. I can't do it. I don't have the courage. I don't. Have I the mean, job. there's no escape. I mean, there's no escape from the self doubt as a writer ever. <laughs> I feel like I mean, this is you cannot. I, you it doesn't know, matter. I remember going to I was uh, have taught at the San Miguel Writers Conference a bunch of times. And one year I was down there and this woman was a keynote speaker. And I wish I could remember her name, but she was a novelist who had published 11 novels, very successful mm. novels. And she said that every morning when she went down to her office, she would take the belt off her robe and tie herself to the chair. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I thought that was the truest thing I have ever heard about writing. Oh my gosh, that's really funny. Yeah. I love that. We have so many topics that we can cover with you. And I, what I really want to get into is is the couple of areas that really come out when people are writing memoir. Um, because a lot of writers tune into this show and there's this... This interesting juxtaposition about writing trauma, which is what you cover in your books, and I know that you help a lot of writers write their memoirs and explore these experiences and get them down on paper. So for you, in our earlier interview, you talk about how there was a moment where you didn't want to write about trauma anymore, and yet that is what your books were based on. That was the foundation of your writing career. So... I guess what I want to ask you is, what is it like to write trauma and how do you manage your body's response to exploring that topic for an extended period of time? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I do in my, in my workshops um, and retreats is I think one of the most important components of what I bring, aside from presence and, you know, all the uh, teaching ideas mm -hmm. and all that is really creating a safe container where people can write. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a, in a group setting that, that entails um, very specific rules of confidentiality um, so that, that when someone sh shares their story, they don't have to deal with people's, you know, reactions, questions, even empathy, that they just mm -hmm. get to be witnessed. Um, so, I, and, and also just, so I, I think 
creating a safe environment for writing is the first thing. And, you know, if someone wants to write about trauma, wants to write their story, they have to have the support to do it. And so, you know, there are certain times um, when it may not be appropriate because you can't deal with the repercussions of what comes up. So I think if you're really going mm. to especially directly write about traumatic experiences, you need support. Um, that support could be uh, a therapist, that mm -hmm. you're, you're in therapy, um, that you're in a support group, um, that you have uh, at least one person in your life who can witness you fully that will be safe where you could share what you're exploring. And mm -hmm. you need to have inner resources as well. So you need to know, what will I do if I get triggered? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I start writing this and a lot of trauma starts coming back in, a lot of, what am I going to do? And, you know, it, it begins with, as you said, it begins with the body, making sure that um, you, are, you are sitting in the chair or wherever you are, that you are actually feeling your feet grounded into the earth. Um, mm -hmm. I often encourage people to create some kind of ritual before they do this kind of writing and to make sure they're in a place where they won't be disturbed. You know, so like that, that might mean, you know, the kids are outside or gone. Uh, your spouse isn't going to bother you. Um, you don't have your phone uh, near you. You're not going to be getting any kind of notifications uh, from mm -hmm. the Internet, um, but that you really create a safe container. And I recommend that people actually use a timer so that they're doing it for a time-limited amount. So it might be, you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour. Mm. Because somehow if you go into it just open-ended, there could be this feeling like it's never going to end. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean you can't renegotiate with yourself and continue. But knowing that there's an ending point really makes a difference. And sometimes people will light a candle or say a prayer or they'll have an altar or they'll they'll create a sacred place where they go to do this kind of writing mm -hmm. um, and I you know sometimes people will do an invocation um, and and then to, to have an ending point and a plan for what you're going to do afterwards mm -hmm. so it might be that you know you're going to and I think you know getting out in nature is incredibly useful, uh, even mm -hmm. if it's like looking at a tree out your window, you know, um, if you can walk to go out and walk and get your feet grounded into the earth, um, but to find ways, whatever is going to work for you to help you get back into your body um, and to take care of yourself in that way. So, so when you do this kind of writing, it shouldn't be jammed in between you know, a meeting and having to pick your kids up. Mm -hmm, right. You have to be kind of, you have to be mindful and careful about when you're going to make the time for this. Yeah. And some, you know, when I've written some of the most challenging scenes I had to write, I did it when I was on retreat, um, either mm -hmm. at a, a writing retreat, you know, that someone else was uh, holding the space. Or mm -hmm. sometimes I've gone on like self retreats where I've gone away for a few days just to write. And there, when I was away from all my daily obligations, I was able to really, really dive into this material. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think the, the thing is, have a plan ahead of time for self-care. Mm. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and to, to double down on that self-care during the period of time when you're, you're digging into this. And also to know that there may be times you have to back away. I think, you know, I remember when I was at the beginning of healing from sexual abuse, you know, this was... 35 years ago, 
I had this mistaken idea that if I healed with more intensity, I would be mm -hmm. done faster. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I was going to therapy two times a week. I was in a couple of support groups. I was interviewing people, you know, incest survivors for the courage to heal. So I was hearing other people's trauma stories all the time. Mm -hmm. I was, mm -hmm. I was reading. I mean, I was just like, it was 24 mm -hmm. seven. Yeah, you were and immersed. I don't really feel, I mean, I don't know that I could have done it differently, but when I look in hindsight, I don't feel like that was a, had a lot of kindness toward myself. Mm. And mm -hmm. so I think that the self-care component is really important. In fact, when I wrote my second book on, on sexual abuse, uh, the, the Courage to Heal workbook, the first chunk of the book, before you even get into the material of the workbook, is all about designing a self-care plan. So mm -hmm. I think that that is the most important piece. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think it's what's hard is that often when we go through trauma, we are dissociated. Um, we're numb. Yes. And then when we are trying to heal from that trauma, we actually have to feel it. So mm -hmm. it, and sometimes it's it's much more challenging. And the thing I always had to tell myself over and over again is that healing from trauma, that you already live through the worst, which is when it happened to you. And that what you're experiencing now, no matter how painful it is, is part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. And just remembering that would, would help me. Um, the other thing I think is really important is that this work should not be done in isolation. And that, that it's important, if, if you're using writing in particular, it's really important to have a safe place where you could share this. And you don't want to share it inappropriately. You don't want to share it with the wrong person. So you really have to use a lot of discernment to mm -hmm. determine who would be a safe person. You know, for one person, it might be their sister. You know, for someone else, your sister would be the worst person to share it with. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at your own relationships and look at the capacity of those other people to listen deeply, to empathize, and not to give advice or their opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to touch back on this idea that, you know, Writing can be really restorative. Um, it can be uh, a way to know how we feel about something, to work through something. And it can be intense for any kind of writing, whatever genre you're doing. But when you're writing trauma, you might also have this feeling of being overwhelmed or it being very intense or kind of saturating your experience. And I think it would be hard to discern, especially if you're new at exploring these feelings, what means you're on a roll and you're having an intense writing moment and what may be that you are kind of flooding. I think I, you know, the way, you know, I think it, that's kind of a challenging question because I, I can think of times I wrote some of the most painful material and I was just sobbing my guts out as I wrote. Mm -hmm. And the, the ultimate scene that then got, you know, rewritten hundreds of times would not have been so powerful if I hadn't been willing to feel to that level while I was writing it. So mm -hmm. I think it's important to do that. But I think if it bleeds over into the rest of your life, if at the end of that time, after you've done your self-care and gone through your plan of what you're going to do, you find that um, you're falling apart in your life, then you need more help. It may be that you're not ready to do that, that work, that you need a different kind of container or a stronger container. Um, you mm -hmm. need to do it in a workshop setting. Um, or it may just be that you're not ready, you know, um, mm -hmm. th that you're not, you don't have enough 
perspective, strength, resources to be able to handle doing that kind of writing. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's not always the right time mm -hmm. um, or the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so that would also be, that's also that kind of balance between knowing when to push yourself and dig deeper and knowing when you need to take a step back and, and be kind to yourself. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, when I was writing um, my memoir, um, The Burning Light of Two Stars, you know, I had to get back into therapy mm -hmm. because the things I was writing about were so difficult. It was, some of it was the difficulty of the writing, actually, but more of it, when I think about it now, was that I was writing as a way to understand my experience more and to deepen my perspective and to to not be in it, but to be able to see it from afar, because, you know, a memoir writer, it's not just you tell the story, but you have to have perspective on the story. Yes. And so to get that perspective, I, I just, I needed to go back to therapy because there were things mm -hmm. I was, I didn't understand yet that I hadn't worked through yet. And the more work I did, the more I was able to write, um, the story still has this tremendous immediacy but it also has this, um, I mean, I, I shouldn't really apply this word to myself, but I will. It has wisdom to it. You know, it has, mm -hmm. it has the, the wise part of me that is able to see things from a bigger perspective. It's almost mm -hmm. like, you know, flying up to, you know, 10,000 feet and looking down. Things look really different than when you're mm -hmm. immersed in them. So it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing. You want both the immediacy, the writing to have that immediacy, but you also want to have that perspective. And, and yeah, I needed support to be able to get there. And it took me that, that's why it took me 10 years to write it. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, it, it can take a lot of people 10 years to write a book. It took me quite a while too. And oh my goodness, writing is a long process. But it is it does speak to what you're you know, I'm thinking about why people find writing to be helpful. Uh, you know, it's we take for granted, I think as writers, that writing is helpful, writing is how we communicate, writing is how we process things. But why does writing help in so many ways? Do you think when you're processing these experiences? I think writing helps get to a deeper place in ourself, I, for me, that I can't access any other way. I, I find that I could tell more of the truth hmm. on the page than I can in any other way. And that I'm, it's interesting, I'm often willing to share something incredibly raw and intimate in a writing group that I may not be ready <laughs> to talk to my spouse about, or that I may not be ready to confide even in a best friend. So mm -hmm. I find that I'm able to be way more honest on the page I don't know why, but, but that's true for mm -hmm. me. And I've seen it for, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of my students, the same thing that there's, there's also, I think the, the crit for me, the critical piece is not just writing it, but having it witnessed. And, you know, mm. a lot of people don't take that step, but I think when you just write it and it's just like festering in your notebook, it's, it's incomplete. There's something about speaking the words out loud and having them witnessed that is incredibly transformative. Uh, mm -hmm. because it's, first of all, you don't even know what you've written when you write it. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. pouring out of you. And there's something about saying it out loud, even if you only read it out loud to yourself. Even if mm -hmm. you don't have someone or you're not ready to read it to one other person or to a, you know, a writing group or whatever, even saying it out loud to yourself, reading it back and hearing your own voice say it is a whole different level of breaking silence because mm -hmm. you really hear what you've said. And often the emotional impact 
doesn't comes much more when you read it out loud than when you write it. So, you know, I always caution people in a writing group, you know, um, you may start crying unexpectedly when you read. And it always takes people by surprise. And they're always like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I'm like, this is part of, this is part of the writing process. There's something mm -hmm. about being witnessed where someone else is taking in your story and your words, and they're holding you in compassion and light. Mm -hmm. That is so incredible. And it's just something we don't get in our real lives. You know, even when you're, you're you might be confiding in your dearest friend, but they're, they're, they may be right there with a response like, mm. oh, my God, I can't believe it. Or, you know, it could be someone saying, I don't remember it that way. Or how mm -hmm. could you say that about mom? But even mm -hmm. if it's an empathetic response, there's something about just being heard. Yes, having people hold space for you. Holding space for you so that, you know, and then especially in a writing group, you know, once you get into a situation you know, like I teach a lot of classes where people are just writing and being witnessed. And they're very different than the classes I teach where people are working on a memoir, you know, or a novel or something where they're coming in to get their work critiqued. And, and that's focused on the craft of how do you mm -hmm. portray the story, which is very, very different than just getting the story out. And mm -hmm. I really recommend that people do the work of just getting the story out, just doing writing practice just getting the raw material out uh, without trying to shape it into anything at first. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, without putting a lot of expectations on yourself either. Absolutely. Uh, I've heard from memoirists and people who are, you know, in the beginning of writing their manuscripts or who are midway, um, that they feel really concerned about writing uh, on their family, sharing personal anecdotes, that they don't know what the ethics are of writing about the family, changing names, things like that. And I know that you've mentioned in a previous conversation that your attitude um, about this has changed over the years and that you have, you know, that your partner is really private. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how to handle those people in your life who really want their privacy when, when you yourself are a writer? Yes, <laughs> I could talk about this for like <laughs> at least several hours. But um, the first is, yeah, when I was just to say when I was um, like in my late 20s, and I was writing The Courage to Heal, um, mm -hmm. my attitude was, it was about, you know, sexual abuse with my grandfather. My attitude was, this happened to me. And when I thought of my family, it's just, you're in denial. So screw you. You know, like, mm -hmm. I have a right to tell my story, which is true. Um, and I really didn't care about their reaction. I felt like it was their problem because they were not accepting the reality. Mm -hmm. And I, I, um, in some ways, I really hardened myself, and I needed to do that to publish that book, and I have no regrets about publishing it. But, you know, in the 35 years since then, I've really shifted my point of view about writing about family members, and in part because of all the experiences I've had where I have uh, written about family members and regretted it. And mostly mm. it's been writing about my children. Um, mm. who obviously d who did nothing wrong. You know, it's not like I'm writing about a perpetrator, but just exposing things about their lives and, and just making them public. Hmm. By, Interesting. You know, I'd I, love to talk about well, that I, a little bit more. I had a column for 10 years in the local paper here in Santa Cruz, the parenting paper called Becoming the Parent I Want to Be. Mm -hmm. And I started it when my son was maybe two years old. He's now 28. 
So this was a long time ago. Yeah. I, uh, my middle son. I started it when he was a toddler. His sister wasn't even born yet. Um, hmm. And I I would write about some episode in being a parent and the focus of the of the column was usually my own foibles you know it was it was about mm -hmm. the lessons i was learning and you know always trying to do better or you know just getting myself in a jam and what i did so i was the focal point um and i i barely wrote about my spouse who i was raising these children with because she didn't want to be written about she's mm -hmm. super private and mm -hmm. so she would be like a footnote or barely mentioned. And it was as if I was parenting these children alone, <laughs> which I wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, that seemed like the best solution, you know. And I was really attached to having this column. I loved, you know, the kind of the, the notoriety of having this parenting column. And I loved the attention I got. And, um, and I loved writing it because it really made me think about what was happening um, with me as a parent. Mm -hmm. And people found it useful, you know. And so for all those reasons, I was attached to it, as, as writers often are to their own work. Um, but what happened was when my son was like five years old, he said, he was super precocious with language. Mm -hmm. He said, um, I don't want you to write about me. Something like that, you know. And, mm -hmm. and it was like, I had just started this column and I was like devastated that I was gonna have to give it up. I had thought, okay, maybe when he's a teenager, I'll have to give this up, but he was five. Mm -hmm. And um, he, and I went to this, I was in a, a, a parenting class um, with this beautiful woman, Janice Kaiser, who I ended up writing a parenting book with down the line. And I asked for her advice and she said, you know, before you give up the column, try to find out what it is that's bothering him. So I went back and had another conversation with him. And he said what he didn't like was that we would go to the playground and people he didn't know, adults, would come up and start talking to him as if they knew him. Oh, yeah. And so what I started doing was, oh, and then I talked to him about would he like a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. So he said yes. He, and he picked a name for himself. And so I kept writing the column and I, uh, I gave him a pseudonym, and then at the, even though I was still using my own name at the top, but it satisfied him. And then uh, at the end, I put a little tag on every column that said, you know, my children request that you do not speak to them about anything you read in this column. Mm -hmm. And then I kept doing it for like years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I look back now, I think I just basically was, I should have just listened to him and canceled the column, but I was too attached. I was too attached to it. Um, and, and then years later, when he hit puberty, I stopped it for real. Because what I found was that the things, the kind of edgy things I wanted to write about just felt too private for him. Oh, yes. And so yes. I, and I, I gave it up. And, and, and then, you know, years later, when they were young adults, I collected all those columns. There were about 100 of them. And I made, it, made them into a book as a gift for them because it had all these mm -hmm. great stories about their childhood. And my partner... Um, was really hurt by it because when she read it, she wasn't in those stories. Oh. And she said, you know, this is, they're going to think of this, this is the written history of their childhood and I don't even exist in it. So oh. that was, that. it's kind of a long story, but that was one of my experiences. No, it's very interesting. One of it's my a lot of pitfalls. Yeah, one of my experiences, um, I had another one with my older son when I wrote about, he was in the Marines and I, I wrote about, you know, what it felt like to be these two anti-war parents who had a son who joined the Marines. You know, and he also was a really private person. And, and, and it really damaged our relationship that I wrote about him without ah, asking his permission. You know, so I've had a lot of run-ins with this sort of thing. Yeah. Well, did you use his real name? 
Uh, probably. I don't remember. It was and, a long and time did ago. You, uh, did you did you ask him if, if you could publish it? No, uh, I, I didn't. I didn't ask him. He was he was serving in uh, Iraq at the time, and I, I didn't. Yeah. I thought, oh, he'll never see it. It was it was in the local paper. They they came and interviewed us, and we ended up being on the front page, and I, you know, so I've just seen how, the the impact being a writer has on people in your family who are private, and you know, with this current book, I. Um, Again, I was writing about my primarily my mother, and I waited until she died to publish it. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like I wanted to do that. In fact, I waited till her whole generation died out. I mean, there were, it was her and two other octogenarians mm. who were the last uh, of her generation, and I waited till they all died to publish it. Um, but well, I hear that too. I hear that from other writers too, because I'm in a lot of these forums, and and they'll they'll say, I just need, you know, I'm not comfortable publishing this until the person involved has passed, or or even, and this speaks to what you were talking about in, in a more generative workshop way. You know, people sometimes feel nervous even beginning to write because they feel guilty writing about certain people in their family, you know, ever seeing it. And so I think that's a whole other aspect. Is you know, can you just suspend you the to. idea that they'll see you? You have to. You just you have, have to, to go generate. You, you have, just have to. You go have generate. to create a, a protective bubble. And for me, mm-hmm. the whole time I was working on this memoir, I just said, "I'm not going to publish this." Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm grieving the death of my mother. This is part of my healing process, my grief process, and I just need to write it. And mm-hmm. I, I think that is so essential. Is you know, they're not they're not in the room with you. Get the damn story out. Mm-hmm. You could decide later about publishing it. You know, when, where, how. You could decide what you're going to keep in, what you're going to edit out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, <clears throat> I think it's really important to write it. And for me, that's what worked. It's just I'm not going to publish it. And I really yes. didn't decide I was going to until later because I, if I had had that in my mind, for me it was, it was that I was going to get disowned all over again because I had mm-hmm. my family, many people in my family had disowned me after I wrote my first book, you know, when I was published it at 31 and here I was more than 30 years later I had already reconciled with those people these are mostly like my cousins like my generation and Mm -hmm. here I was about to publish something that could mean that I would really lose them forever because we are we are old we're too old (laughs) to have another (laughs) 20 years to work this out yeah and I had to I had to weigh the fact that I had a story that I believed would touch and inspire many, many, many people, and that had really universal significance in terms of what it takes to heal an estranged relationship and and what it's like to try to take care of someone who betrayed you at the end of that person's life and all the challenges Mm -hmm. it brings. I felt like it was a universal story. And then I had this little pocket of like maybe a dozen or less people who are going to be very upset when this book comes out. And so, you know, what mm-hmm. I did actually this year was I, I got some really good coaching um, from Ellen Bass, who was my co-author for Courage to Heal, where she, we live in the same town and we were mm. walking on the beach a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and I kept feeling like I had to confess. I had to tell these people <laughs> what I was doing because we were, we, like they would come to my house for Thanksgiving, things like that. And I was mm-hmm. working on the book and I wouldn't say anything about it. And I felt like such a crappy person. And mm-hmm. she just said, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> she said, until you have a publisher and you know that this book is absolutely going to be published, do not say anything. Mm-hmm. So I took her advice. And when I finally signed a book contract, I wrote to my relatives 
And, you know, basically, I wasn't asking permission, um, but it was an apology. You know, it was like, I, I, this is what I'm doing. I want, to inf I want you to find out from me. I'm going to be revisiting these subjects that were incredibly painful for us in the past. I know you would strongly prefer that I not do this, but, you know, I, in addition to being your cousin, I'm also a writer and I feel the need to do this. And I'm, I'm really mm. sorry for the impact it will have on your life. And that's so different than how I felt 35 years ago, which is mm -hmm. I'm right and you're wrong. It's like, it doesn't matter to me that they may be in denial about the subject of this book. The fact is they're private people and I'm writing about our family and it's not really, they're not, they're not in the book. <clears throat> There's mm -hmm. people, they're not in it, but they're, they're mm -hmm. going to be impacted. And mm -hmm. it's going to be mm -hmm. really difficult for them. And I feel bad mm -hmm. about that. Not mm -hmm. enough to not publish. But it's just, yeah. it's like, I feel this compassion for them about how incredibly difficult it is to have a writer in the family. <laughs> yes, there, there's that line of, you know, we have the right as writers to express and to communicate. And, and we can also understand what it must be like for the people who are related to us and connected to us. And I think that, you know, the, the child issue, the issue of, of talking about your children, I remember reading a quote from Alice Monroe, the great fiction writer, short story extraordinaire, that she would always mine territory that had to do with the older generation, aunts and, you know, older women in her family that, that she came after. But she never would write about her children. Um, and that had something to do with the fact that, you know, they were her children and also that I think they were the only ones who were going to be there to take care of her when she got older. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm very much like paraphrasing, but but I think, you know, I see there's a lot of sharing of our children. I'm sure that I'm not the first person to bring this up. A lot of sharing of children on social media. Oh, my God. A lot of talking about our kids in anecdotal ways. And, you know, as, as writers, the, it, there's lots of opportunity to bring the children in. And I think it reminds me a little bit of that memoir, Hold Still, by the photographer, um, whose name I'm, is escaping me, I'll have to insert it, who basically photographed all of her children uh, and said she got consent to show these photos, you know, from them when they were only 12, et cetera. And there was a lot of backlash about it. So I think, you know, you've sort of said a couple things, which is that you are regretful that you continue to publish that work uh, about your child, the column, and about your son. But at the same time, you know, if you could go back, would you have changed it? Would you have decided not to do any writing about your kids? No, I mean, that's who I was. And the fact is that, you know, um, my my son and daughter, the younger ones who I wrote about in that column, they're actually, right now, they're young, they're young adults, they're in their 20s. They're super grateful I did it because huh. <laughs> at this point, you know, they're like, they feel like they have these great stories. And um, they were super happy to share it with their spouses and mm -hmm. and and they could also see a lot about their upbringing. So, you know, and, and how they'll feel later, like if they have children, they might have a whole different reaction then. They might mm. they might go back to feeling like it was a violation. But I think I've established enough open lines of communication um, that they'll feel free to talk about it. And, and I both my those kids, actually, all three of my kids have been really clear with me that if I ever want to write anything about them, even like a Facebook post, I have to run it by them first. And I am mm -hmm. scrupulous about doing that because mm -hmm. I care much more about my relationships with them than I do about what I'm publishing. Exactly, and, exactly. And it can be hard to remember that when you're trying to get something out there. Right. And so like the, for the, the new book, Burning Light of Two Stars, it was kind of interesting because, you know, it was 
the primary characters are my mother and me. And, you know, I, and I felt like she actually gave me permission to write this book before she died. So I felt fine about writing about her. But, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a family story. So my spouse is part of it and my kids are part of it. And I had to get their permission. And um, Karen, um, my spouse, was like really not happy about it. Mm. But she, I would say begrudgingly, she said yes, because, you know, I was already an author when I met her. And she knew who she was marrying. <laughs> I, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. but yet she's very private. So actually what I did was I really minimized, her, again, minimized her role in the book. And, you know, some of the beta readers I had, they'd read the book. They'd say, you know, the, your portrayal of you and your mother, you're like two of the most incredibly vivid characters I've ever read. But your mm-hmm. your wife, she, she just seems kind of like too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact is, I really uh, didn't write about her fully. I didn't create a fleshed out character because she didn't mm-hmm. want me to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so really, she's an approximation of a spouse. It's not really reflective <laughs> of her. And, and she plays a much smaller role in the story than she actually did in real life. Interesting. Interesting. So that's something that, you know, you have to kind of take with a grain of salt. She's sort of like a spouse placeholder kind in of, the memoir. Yeah, that's right. And, and the kids, um, you know, they... I asked them, they were super supportive of me writing this book, and they became readers for me. So uh-huh. they, they each read it, the whole manuscript, um, a couple of times, and they gave me the best notes. Oh, wow. I mean, first of all, it was like, I didn't know this. This is so amazing. And they were really good editors, actually. So they gave <laughs> me great editorial feedback, and they had a perspective no one else had, and they were super, super helpful. And they're big fans. And actually, it's so interesting because one of the things that I want to do um, is that when people finish reading the book, I want to have, I put a link in the back, you know, where people could come and see pictures of the people in the book, Mm -hmm. you know, so to create a slideshow of the characters. And, um, you know, I have to get their permission to do that. And if if they don't (laughs) want me to do, if it's like they don't want their physical, then I'm going to ditch that idea. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would like to do it because I think that's really, I always like to see what do these people really look like. Yes, yes, yes. You know, but, um, but again, I have to get permission because it's one thing to, because then they really would be visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it just yeah. Goes, so it just goes on and on and on. Yes, um, yes. You have to try to find, you know, get get in touch with integrity and, you know, for, for other writers out there and see what, what feels right and what they, how they would want to be treated as well, if you think about it. If you were the character in someone else's book, you know, how would you want to be approached? Um, so in the final minute or two of our talk here, do you, do you ever think trauma, I'm curious what kind of memoirs you look to read, like what you look for in memoirs, and, and also, and you can answer or not answer the second part, do you ever think that trauma is exploited in the literary community hmm. by writers? Do you ever think, you know, that, that there's sort of like a genre that, that doesn't do trauma and trauma writing uh, a service? What I look for um, is vivid writing, um, mm-hmm. a compelling storyline, um, and I, I really actually love memoirs that have a broader focus than just the person's story. You know, something mm-hmm. that's set in a mm-hmm. historical context or a political context or um, is, you know, talking is in the context of learning about farm workers or learning about, you know, something larger than just the um the writer's personal story. So that's like, that's number one, my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. The other is I love a memoir where I'm laughing and crying on the same page, mm-hmm. you know, that has humor and pathos. 
And that, mm-hmm. that's really what I tried to do with, with my book as well. Um, and the last thing I look for um, is perspective, that I, I really like to see the author um, having thought through the events they're writing about and having some kind of greater wisdom or awareness that they're sharing with the reader. Mm-hmm. I like, you know, I, I like the, you know, kind of the classic growth memoir, you know, where someone mm-hmm. is on a trajectory of growth or learning or um, evolution. And I love seeing mm-hmm. that evolution. I mean, I, I find I find some like it's interesting. I was um, thinking about the book Educated last night, which was, I thought, a yes. terrific memoir. But for mm-hmm. me, if I had edited that book, I, w- I would have I, I, I didn't need her to go back so many times into the horrible situation of her family. I, mm-hmm. For me as a reader, I found that tedious. And it was just mm-hmm. like, come on already, get on with it. <laughs> and, mm, yeah, and, so it, that might be like a trauma issue, like like a lot of yes. trauma there, kind of hitting the reader a little bit hard with that. I, you know, I think for me, the thing that I object to the most in memoir, if there's any feeling that it smacks of revenge, mm, um, yes, or a diatribe, or like I'm getting back at someone, or if I see a villain who is not three-dimensional, that's just like a cardboard character, I lose empathy mm-hmm. for the for the author. So mm-hmm. I, I think it takes a huge amount of work to get to the point where you could write every character as a full human being, even the ones who yes. have done the worst. And Yes, yes, yes. I think so because, I mean, nobody is black or white. And even if you watch movies, uh, you know, like typical um, action movies and movies that are made with, like, some care, even the villain has sort of a storyline or some type of uh, – kernel of humanity that caused them to act the way they do it's not just yeah yeah I was working with a a beautiful wonderful writing coach uh, Joshua Townsend Zellner for this to to get this book over the finish line Mm -hmm. and at one point he had me do this exercise where he had me write a scene of uh, showing my mother doing something she absolutely loved Hmm. and where I had to get out of my filter you know, mm-hmm. of my resentment and all, you know, complexity and, and all that. And really step back and write about her doing something she loved. And it, it really helped, it helped soften her. Um, and it helped me realize that all these scenes, even the most complex, like the worst fights we had, and there's quite a few of them um, mm-hmm. in the story, that there were layers. Yes. That, that it wasn't just she was awful and I was you know, being victimized, but that actually there was so much more complexity. And so I love books where there, there's that complexity and you, you get to see, you don't, it's like, there's no black and white characters. You know, everyone is flawed. That's what I'm always looking for. To me, that, that shows that someone has the distance, um, Mm -hmm. to have that kind of perspective. Um, and it's interesting because if you write it right away, you get the immediacy so it's sort of like you want the immediacy because if I go back and try to recreate a scene that happened 30 years ago that I haven't written about, it's going to have this feeling of distance. Yes. Um, but if I take that scene and have the immediacy, then I also have to wait <laughs> until I'm capable of bringing that perspective to it. And th- those are the books I love the most is the ones where there's there's the voice of wisdom and there's the voice of immediacy. There's humor um, and there's pathos. There's There's grief and there's joy. And there's, there's also something universal. It's like, it, I want to read a book that's going to make me think about my own life. 
Mm, yes, yes. So you, it's kind of like the whole package. <laughs> You've just <laughs> described the whole package <laughs> is what you're asking for. Right, I want it all. <laughs> yes. But I do think that that is what makes up a really good memoir. And I do agree with you about sometimes it's just too soon to write about something. And the perspective is really an important component in memoir. Um, so a, a note to anyone listening that you have so many workshops you offer and writing retreats and so many different resources on your website. And so why don't you just uh, shout out where people can find you? Um, in general, I'm best place is my website, lauradavis.net. Um, that's where you could find out about my workshops, my writing retreats, classes, both online and in person. Um, and in terms of the, the new memoir, um, you can read the first five chapters online um, and decide if you like it and get hooked on the story. Um, and that is lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. And if you go there, you can um, read the beginning. Um, and and I, I really worked hard on the hook at the beginning of the story. Um, so you could see how that's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so excited uh, to see how this book enters the world and to see all the new readers that get to know your story and what you've experienced. And Laura, I'm so happy we had time together today and that you were able to fit me in in your busy book launch and um, so thrilled I can share our conversation. Thank you for being my guest. You're welcome. I've totally enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.